This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. This morning, uh, we're going to continue in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we've been journeying through this, uh, this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And the theme for the sermon series has been recalibrate. And every week, I've tried to come up with another example in real life about things that need to be recalibrated. And so I was thinking about what's another example, and we've got chapter 14, 15, and 16, so I need to come up with two more for the next two weeks. But this is the one that I thought of today. So you know, in my life growing up, we would always, we grilled food a lot. And so when you grill food, you just get the fire going, you put the burgers on. You don't have to really be that attentive to the temperature because you're just searing the meat and, you, and then you eat it, right? Apologies to all the vegans and vegetarians in the room. Just dismiss this moment for a little bit. But when you slow cook food, what do you have to do? You have to make sure that your temperature is slow and low and consistent throughout the cook. Otherwise, you're going to dry out your meat. And so let's say you have a thermometer on your smoker and it's incorrect. That could ruin a delicious meal that you prepared for all your family. So I, I made a brisket for the first time for Arden's graduation party. And yesterday I, I smoked some ribs, and they were delicious. If anybody wants to come over for lunch to, after church, we have some extra. But they were so good because my temperature gauge was calibrated correctly. So this whole idea of recalibration means we want to be in tune and calibrated correctly uh, in our lives, according to the Word of God. And so much of what we've been talking about is, well, what's my life? How is my life calibrated to the Word of God? But another way that we can think about this is, how is our church's life calibrated to the Word of God? And so one of the things that we've been doing as a church uh, with the session is we've been exploring and thinking about what does it mean for Woodland to become a vitalized church? What does it mean for us to be calibrated in line with the Word of God? And so uh, there's a member of our presbytery that's come alongside us to encourage us in this, in this pathway. And the process has been we created a vision team uh, that's made up of a number of folks that was elected by the session to pray and to do some assessments of where we are as a church and to think through where are the ways we're operating in strength? Where are our weaknesses? What are the opportunities that we have to reach our community, to be a Great Commission church? Right? A great commission, remember Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them and teach them everything I've commanded you. That's great commission. Great commandment is to love your neighbor and to care for them. We want to be a great commission and a great commandment church. What are we doing that's already living into that? And what, are we, could, what could we be doing that would help us to engage our community in a more significant way? So one of the things that's coming up this summer that we're going to be inviting everybody in the church to participate in is an analysis of what you think our strengths are, what you think our weaknesses are, where we see our opportunities in the community, and anything that is challenging for us as a church. And so uh, in the next few weeks, uh, someone from the vision team will be reaching out to you, whether it's a group of folks or a Sunday school class or a team of people, and invite you to give your feedback and to give your uh, participation so that you're knowing what's going on and how we're seeking to live out God's commission for us, the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. So we're inviting everybody to be a part of that, and uh, there'll be opportunities for you to meet in groups. There'll be opportunities to gather on Sunday mornings. So whatever the case may be, we want you to be part of that to get your feedback so that we can be the most faithful church that we can be. 
We're excited about what God's doing in our church, and we're looking forward to getting your input as a part of that process as we recalibrate together. Now, let's turn to God's Word and read a few passages, a few verses, so we can reflect on it this morning. Will you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 5. This is God's Word. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in the tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for this opportunity to hear what it is that you want for us. What does it mean to be part of the community of faith, the, the gathered church, the assembly of God? And how are we learning and growing in your image? And to what have you called us as individuals and as a people? How can we respond in obedience to what you've said? God, help us to, to learn one thing and to do one thing in response to what you've said. In Jesus' name, amen. If you build it, he will come. That's the phrase that's whispered to Ray Kinsella in the movie Field of Dreams as he's standing out in the middle of his cornfield. It's a confusing moment for him, but eventually he realizes that if he builds a baseball field in the middle of this cornfield, that the ghosts of former players, including his father, will come. They'll play ball and they'll ease their pain from shattered dreams and broken relationships. And so against his brother-in-law's wishes, he cuts down this profitable cornfield and turns it into a baseball field. Eventually, players appear one after the other, including a player who ends up saving his daughter's life. And another man who is estranged is his own father with whom he's estranged. At the end of the movie, they reconcile. And so for many years, uh, the the pattern of church life in America has been, if you build it, they will come. If you put up a building, and you put up a sign, and you send out some mailers, people will come. If you want more people, build a bigger sanctuary. Have more programs that connect with young people, with old people, with musical people, with athletic people, whatever it is. Try to diversify your portfolio so that you can meet the needs of every single person. If there's something out there that people want, the church should try to provide it for them because that's going to bring them into the building. And that strategy worked for a season. After World War II, churches grew as America grew. But over time, many of those buildings have emptied out. Buildings where once thousands of people had gathered have become carpet stores. Neighborhood churches have become Airbnbs, and meeting houses have become museums. If you've ever driven by Germantown Hospital, there's a museum right there. It's an old building. I don't know if anyone gathers in it. 
If you go down Poplar and Carville, there's another museum where the church once, once gathered. Instead of translating disciples who make disciples, we just made buildings, believing that if we had the nicest building, then people would come and meet Jesus. And so in the passage this morning, maybe you notice this, in the first five verses, a number of times there was a word that was used repeatedly, and it was to build. But Paul is talking about building up the church in a different way. He's not talking about building buildings. He uses the word building in a metaphorical way, similar to what he did way back in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. There he said, you are God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Who is each one? Who do you think each one is? Say me. And don't say Matt, say me. I am, right? Each one builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul is using this image, this metaphor, to capture our attention, to give us a a holy imagination about what the church is and what it can be. And to see, as we look at what the church is in the Bible, then we can understand, is what we do as the church reflective of Scripture, or are they merely our own traditions, our own practices? Is the way that we experience church today what Paul, or Jesus for that matter, had in mind? And it's worth asking that question. And that's in part what we're doing with this vitality effort. We're asking, we're asking to say, God, what is it that you would have for us as a church at Woodland? Are we being consistent with the, with the Bible? Are we calibrated in the right way so that we can love you and love our neighbors most effectively? How do we indeed mature God's people to serve a hurting world? What are we doing well? What can we do that would be more effective And the first step in that process is just taking a look, is asking, getting feedback from everybody in the church to say, how are we doing? What does God's word say? See, for many, building the church is adding programs or adding staff or adding buildings or other things that will try to get people into the door. And certainly having a place to gather is a good thing, right? We love this space and we're thankful to be able to be here. And having people set apart for the work of ministry is a good thing as well. But those things alone don't lead to reproducing disciples, right? Matthew 28, someone who is a disciple, is a follower of Jesus, who makes other followers of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. One metaphor that I encountered was this image of a a trellis and a vine, right? You know what a trellis is? It's a wooden structure that's created that helps a vine to grow. Some Trees and plants can grow up on their own because they have the, the root structure that will, per, will create a trunk which allows them to grow. But vines are not that way. They need something to cling to and to grow up in. And so that's why you make a trellis. And if you have a nice trellis, then you could, your vine will be able to grow. But the, this image that I was thinking about the life in the church is that sometimes churches are so focused on building a, a trellis, they neglect the vine. Right? And a trellis is easier to plan and easier to create. Right? You just make a design, you get the materials, you get your hammer, you paint it. You can compare your trellis to somebody else's trellis. Our trellis is bigger and more ornate and more beautiful than your trellis. But if we don't care for the vine by watering the vine, by tending to it, making sure that it has sunlight and nutrients and all the things that living things have in order to grow, then we'll just have a trellis. 
And the author of the book, The Trellis and the Vine, was arguing that sometimes churches focus so much on building the trellis that they've neglected the vine. And what is the vine? The vine is the living thing that has a flower. It produces fruit. It's really what you're after when you build a trellis. And sometimes if we think if we just build things, people will come. But what Paul is saying is that we need to build up one another, not simply to build structures. Churches that balance on the health of their vines and the appropriate construction of a trellis are healthy. They grow. They reproduce. Reproducing disciples are made on the inside, and the new people are reached on the outside. Members are not consumers that come to buy religious services, but they're people that come to experience the presence of God, to encourage one another in faith, recognizing that every person who comes into contact with God has something to give the rest of the community, not only the other believers, but also the world around them in the name of Jesus. If you just build a beautiful trellis and you don't tend to or even plant a vine, all you have is a structure. Nothing is growing. And here's what's hard. Like I said, it's easier to build a trellis because we can plant it and figure it out. We don't make anything grow. Only God makes something grow. When we tend to a vine, we do those things that lead to growth, but ultimately God is the one who is going to bring the growth with the vine. So we need to be doing both of those things. We need to be doing both of those things. So to use this analogy within the church, if we just focus on our structures, uh, attendance, buildings, cash, you know, the ABCs of church life, attendance, buildings, and cash, we're just counting those things. How many people showed up? We might be tempted to do things that would just get people to show up, having no idea whether or not they're actually maturing and growing in grace of Jesus Christ. And if we look around the world, we look around America, we see that a lot of churches have simply focused on building their trellis. They're just counting attendance, buildings, and cash. Instead of saying, how do we foster that vine to grow? That every person that sits in the sanctuary realizes that they have a gift they have an opportunity to serve and to love, to make disciples and to care for the world. Be a great commission church and a great commandment church. So what does Paul mean when he says build? Because this could be a discouraging thing, right? We could look around the, the world and go, oh man, the church isn't growing. What's going on? But the truth is we have the word of God. We have hope. We have joy. We have the opportunity to recalibrate our lives as individuals and as a church to be the kind of people God wants us to be. Paul uses in this passage the word ecclesia, which is often translated church. Now, it's hard for us because when we think of church, we think often of a building. And we know, you know, here's the church, here's the steeple, look inside and see all the people. And you realize that the people is the church. And we know that, but simply when you drive past a building where the church gathers, there's a temptation to say, isn't that a beautiful church? But that's not the church. Isn't that a beautiful building where the church gathers? Be thinking about that when you're thinking about what the church is. In this passage, Paul seven times uses a special word in 1 Corinthians 14. It's oikodomeo. Oikodomeo. And it means to increase the potential of someone or something. Focusing on a process that's involved to strengthen, to make more able, to build up. Other translations render this word to edify. It's two words, oiko, demeo. Oiko or oikos is the household. 
Dumeo is to build up. And what Paul is saying is to build up the spiritual household that is the church. To strengthen it. To establish it. Now, we're not thinking. We need to break our categories. We're not thinking about buildings and walls, a ceiling and a roof. Like, you know the difference between a house and a home, right? Just intuitively, you know, a house is a structure where people live, but a home is a place to belong. A home is where you go for safety and for community and for rest and for fellowship. And that's a, that's a totally different thing. A church is not a building. A church is a community of people that gather in the name of Jesus to be edified, to be built up. In the same way, an oikos is not so much a dwelling place as it is a people. It's not a house, but a household. It was the community of people that you lived with. That was your oikos, the people that you worked with, that you gathered for worship with, that you lived with and played with and had festivals and, and, and parties with. And those members of the oikos are deeply connected in relationship, in work, in celebration, in dependence upon one another, affection for one another, service for meaning. See, we live in a time now where it's just so easy to go from place to place. But in those days, when the, the Bible was written, when this was revealed, everybody lived in community together. And we see the fracturing of our community as a hindrance to spiritual development and growth. And so Paul in this chapter is talking about building up these oikos, these households, not simply to add more rooms and structures for people to live, but so the people of God would be built up spiritually. Paul wants you to be built up spiritually. And why is that valuable? Well, just think about the challenges that you face in this world. The sense of discouragement. The wondering about what's happening in our culture. How are you going to make it financially? How is my health going? All those questions that lead us potentially to anxiety or fear or isolation. I'm worried about this. What happens when you are spiritually nurtured and built up in the faith? When you face those kinds of questions and challenges, you remember, I have God who is with me. I have a community of people that love me. They're not going to let me fail. They're not going to let me falter. Things are going to be difficult, but I am going to make it because God is with me and I'm part of a spiritual family. That's why this makes a difference. And that's why it's so important for us to do what Paul is telling us to do. And what is he telling us to do? Use your spiritual gift to build up the church. Paul is saying, use your gift. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, in 1 Corinthians 12, we had this whole long section on what does it mean to build up one another with our gifts. Each of us has a gift. Listen to what he says in this passage. I'm going to read it again to us, because he's talking about tongues and prophecy. And it gets a little bit confusing because he spends so much time in this first section of 1 Corinthians 40, and it makes you think, well, do I do tongues or prophecy? He's saying, don't do tongues, do prophecy. But what does that mean for me? I'm going to read this passage again, and we're going to explain it. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. That's easy. Pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. What is your spiritual gift? Especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him. For he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. 
The one who speaks in the tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So Paul has already shared that these are two different gifts. And we know that there are a lot of different gifts that the Spirit gives to his people. Tongues and prophecy are two different ones. The gift of tongues refers to a supernatural ability to speak in a language that was never before learned. Now, there's debate in the church today about whether the gift of tongues actually continues. Some people say when the, can- when the canon was closed, when the Bible times ended, then those gifts don't work anymore. Some people say that they continue on, and that's debated within the church. Uh, Christians disagree on that. But Paul is taking a lot of time here to emphasize the gift of prophecy over the gift of tongues, because in this situation, what Paul is saying is the people who are using the gift of tongues don't have someone to interpret to make sense out of what's being said. So he's saying, hey, don't use that gift. That's not building up the church. Instead, prophesy, which is to speak truth from God's word into your community. He's emphasizing in this moment, one issue that they were facing is tongues are creating confusion. Prophecy is creating clarity. So use that gift. Because in verse 33, he says, for God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. See, when God's people gather as the church, what is experienced should be comprehensible. Hopefully this sermon is comprehensible. Not that we're always going to understand the mystery of God and everything that he's saying and doing, because as finite creatures, that's impossible for us. But what is said about God in a gathering should make sense to us. And what Paul is saying is, hey, even if you have this gift of tongues, you need to use it in the right way. And in this situation in Corinth, it wasn't being used in the right way. Verse 6 goes on, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Even Paul is saying, hey, if I'm doing this and it's not helpful, it's not good. Verse 7, Even If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. So what he's saying is, in this situation, when using tongues, it's unclear to people. It's like if someone who is playing a flute or a harp is not playing it skillfully or they're playing it in an unintelligible way, it's distracting. I'll give you an example of what this sounds like. We're gathered here for corporate worship. And this is me playing on the piano. Betty Sue, is this how you taught me? Right? It sounds terrible. Thank you. It's confusing because there's a way to play the piano. And some people are better than others. But it's, if it's a skillful presentation of the gift, then you, you say, that's clear. That helps me to worship God. Well, this is an example of what Paul is talking about. If it's unclear, if it's confusing, it's a distraction. Think about what he uses this, uh, this example of the bugle. Well, the bugle is the way that people, the generals in a battle, would communicate to their soldiers down in the valley in the fields. And if you're confused about what the bugle is saying, that's going to be bad. Because if you think, oh, that means charge, and it actually meant retreat, that's going to be bad for you, right? Very bad. 
So what Paul is talking about is using your gift in a clear way that is beneficial for the community. Because if we're not doing that, we could be doing the wrong thing. And so when we think about this, you have to be asking yourself the question, okay, what's my gift? How can I use it? That doesn't mean that the first time you play the piano, you're going to be excellent at it. But if it's what God has gifted you to do, that as you use your gift, as you practice it, like every teacher, the first time a teacher gets up to teach, they're probably really nervous. They're not sure what they do, how, how they should go about it. Maybe they talk too much and they don't use enough questions. But as you become a better teacher, you learn how to help your students learn. Right? If you uh, have a gift of prophecy, which is to speak the truth of God's word, there probably have been times in your life when you spoke too harshly. You know it's true, and they know it's true, but you didn't speak it in a way that the person could receive it. So part of using your gift to build up the church is to navigate how to do it in a way that is edifying to build up the church. And part of that is just training and experience. Verse 12 says, So with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. And what is a manifestation of the Spirit? Sometimes we think of a manifestation of the Spirit as like what happened at Asbury in Kentucky, which is fantastic, that there's this outpouring of the Spirit and people are praising God for hours and hours and hours. I mean, that's fantastic. But a manifestation of the Spirit is someone using their gift. Is a regular, everyday Christian who has said, this is what I believe God has gifted me to do. And when they come to gather as the church, they build up another person. That's a manifestation of the Spirit. It can be a big explosive thing that lasts for, you know, for weeks, but it can also be as simple as engaging with someone on a Sunday morning and providing a word of encouragement for them. Someone who says, I have a gift of healing. And it may not be a physical healing. It may be just an emotional counsel to say, hey, I noticed that you are going through something and I wanted to encourage you. That's using your gift to build up the church. Remember I mentioned this. Uh, these are some, some of the gifts that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Manifestations. The utterance or message of wisdom, which is to understand God's word and to speak truthfully and gracefully about God and others. Utterance of knowledge is not just knowing information, but an understanding of spiritual things and an ability to communicate those things. A gift of faith is this total trust in the gospel, truly believing that God is going to accomplish his purposes. And you know, you see people that have faith that God is going to work, and that's, that faith can be contagious and wonderful. What's it like when someone says, we've got to believe that God is going to do this in your life? That's encouraging. That's using your gift to build up the church. That's a manifestation of the Spirit. Healing is, is the power to care, maybe even to do a spiritual or physical healing. Prophecy is to solidify the teachings of the church. And there are so many other gifts. Mercy, hospitality, giving, serving, exhortation. What is your gift? And how are you using it? What is it that you're building? What is it in your life that you are building? You know, as Americans, we work a lot. We work out a lot. We love to create, to cultivate, to curate. And God has given us these good things to use the natural resources of the world to create flourishing. We can create art. We can create products that help people's lives. 
We have uh, teachers who impart information for children and students to grow as people in the world. Medical workers facilitate healing. Students are dedicated to learning so they can discern their vocation. Work is a good thing. But how are you using your gifts to build up others in Christ? Have you discerned? This is what I think my gift is. Maybe this is it. I'm not sure. I'm going to try this. I'm going to try that. If work to you is simply a means for making money, a means to retire or to get status, then work is not what work is designed to be. It's actually an idol. Instead, how can you use your chosen occupation to build up others, to create flourishing? Or maybe you manage people. How do you help the people that you manage to get a sense of joy and hope in the roles that they have in your workplace? How are you using your gifts and skills to bring flourishing? How are you using your words and actions to encourage others in Jesus? Verse 26 says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Think about when you come together. Okay, guess what? Y'all came together this morning. We're all here. When you come to this gathering, when you walk through the parking lot, when you decide this morning, I'm getting up, I'm going to make it there, and you walk in, what's your posture? Is it, I need to get something out of this? Or is it, what can I give? Am I going to give God worship because he deserves it and he's worthy? And am I going to serve others? Or is it, I need something? Because here's the thing I want to challenge you to consider. If you come with the posture of giving something to God, and giving something to others, you're going to get way more than you ever imagined. If you come in and you have a posture of saying, I want to give, then you're going to make connections. Listen to what he says. Each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation. Having a hymn doesn't mean having a great voice and singing in front of others, even though our choir does. Having a lesson doesn't mean being an amazing teacher, although it can mean using your gift of teaching. What if it means using what God is teaching you this week to build up another person? What if it means sharing the song that's in your heart to encourage another person who's facing hardship? Hey, I know it's been tough for you this week. I just want you to know that I'm continuing to pray for you. And I love you. What if giving revelation is offering a word to someone who needs to hear, hey, you need to get back in here. We're learning and growing together. Come be part of this community. Don't fall away. Don't wander away. Come back. And be part of our fellowship. It's just that when we gather, he says in verse 40, all things should be done decently and in order. Paul wants everyone to use their gifts to build up. And the way we do that should be peaceful and orderly without confusion. Now, if you read 1 Corinthians 14 uh, today, you're going to come across this section at the end that I wanted to address because it's there. We, we couldn't uh, figure out a song that would go with this section at the end of 1 Corinthians 14, so we just picked different songs. Here's the verses. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. There's not a song for that in the hymnal. <laughs> for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. All right, who wants to interpret that? Who's got a word or a lesson for us this morning on that? I wanted just to address it. Um, because if we take this literally, it would mean that women are not allowed to sing in church or to respond if the pastor asked a question or to participate in any way. 
And it would then contradict what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 when he said that women could pray and prophesy in the church. And so common sense, church custom, and good principles of biblical interpretation all say that we shouldn't take these verses literally, and really no one does. Some people do. It's not a blanket prohibition that says women can't speak in the church. Rather, Paul is addressing his comments to a certain situation, and his comments are limited in a way. It seems likely that there were certain women in that context that were speaking out, creating confusion and disorder. And that's what he's speaking out against. So if you read through 1 Corinthians 4 and you go, why didn't Matt address this? Well, here it is. There's it being addressed. Addressed. Um, verse 40 says, but all things should be done decently and in order. And this is a hallmark of a Presbyterian worship is that we love to quote this verse. And sometimes I think that we get so stuck down in decently and in good order, we lose our life and our joy. But what it's saying is that there should be clarity. We don't want everybody in the church getting up and yelling and screaming what they think. We want to have proper worship. It should be lively. It should be an exclamation point where there's an exclamation point. It should be full of joy and passion. But it also should be clear so the people of God can grow. He's reminding us, Paul, is that each person has a role to play in building up the church. So here's the thing, friends. What is your role? What is the gift that God has given you to build up this body? It may not include anything up on these steps, but it certainly could include something that happens out in the foyer, an embrace, a friendship, a coffee, a gathering. Listen to what he says in Ephesians. Um, Every member of us, every member of God's family is a part of the household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Every single one of you has been brought into the spiritual oikos. And every single one of you are invited to build up another person. Do you have to do it perfectly? Do you have to do it confidently? Absolutely not. But you are called to do it. And if we want to be faithful to Jesus in light of what he's done, then we want to respond in obedience to say, yes, Lord, because guess what, friends? There's a blessing in it. When you respond in obedience to what God has told you to do, whether it's in the church as as a gathering or in your workplace, God is going to bless you in that. Think about this. Part of recalibration is asking myself, what is the gift that I've been given? How do I use that gift for the sake of Christ? Is it possible that I've been building something else for too long? My reputation, my portfolio, my resume. How is God inviting me to build up the church, to mature God's people, to serve a hurting world? It's never too late to ask that question, to recalibrate, to use the gift that you've been given. Will you respond to his invitation to bring you into his oikos and then to build up the church? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.